We're continuing our study of the book of Daniel, called A Christian in Babylon, with Daniel chapter 4, verses 19 to 37. I will read them for you. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, my lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump, bound with iron and bronze, in the grass of the field, while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord, the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is God's word. So today we get back into the a chronological flow of the book of Daniel. Last week we took a detour to chapter 7 because Daniel chapter 7 is one of the traditional readings for Reformation Sunday, which was last Sunday. Um, now we're jumping back into Daniel 4, picking up where we left off two weeks ago. Um, 
What happens in the text here is obviously a little bit weird, and we're going to have to work through some of the details of that. Um, but what actually is happening here is, is quite simple to understand, if not a little bit fantastic. But a couple things I want you to notice about this chapter before we start to dig into it. First of all, I want you to notice that Nebuchadnezzar writes this chapter. If you look at the beginning of Daniel chapter 4, it starts with Nebuchadnezzar saying that he is writing this chapter by his own hand, and you can even see that in the portion of the text that we read. Uh, You can also see, of course, that this is kind of a repetitive chapter, which is part of the reason we didn't read the first 18 verses. Uh, It's essentially the same story told over and over again. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He then tells the dream to Daniel. Daniel interprets the dream, and then the dream comes to pass. And so you essentially get the same story three times in a row. So we're mostly going to focus on the fulfillment of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had um, rather than work through the entire chapter. So what I want to do today is, again, just quickly skim back through the chapter and make sure we know what's going on. And then I want to make three big applications, particularly about the person of Nebuchadnezzar and what we learn here from him. So let's look back at the text. Um, Like I said, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And in this dream, uh, there is a tree. And this tree is massive. Its its branches reach to the heavens and spread out as far as the earth. There are plants, sorry, animals that live in the tree and under the tree. Um, But as Nebuchadnezzar sees this tree, a voice from heaven comes and says, cut down the tree and bind the stump with iron and bronze. And Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, the purpose of this dream is to show you that if you do not repent, if you do not renounce your sins, if you do not acknowledge that God is the most high, then this is going to happen to you. You are this tree. Your rule spreads over the entire known world at this time. What you do benefits people across what we know to be the world. And If you do not repent, God is going to cut you off and send you out to live like an ox in the uh, the wilderness, eating grass and and sleeping outside. And so he gives the advice, renounce your sins, but of course, Daniel, or excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't do that. Uh, He continues in his arrogance, thinking that his kingdom was the kingdom that he built for himself, all the way to the point where we read in the text that he's standing, looking over Babylon, and he thinks to himself, or even says out loud, look at this great city that I built for myself, Right? And it's at that moment that the voice comes from heaven and says, the stuff that that was prophesied in your dream that Daniel told you about, now it's going to happen. And we see that, right? It says, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of his royal palace, he said, is this not the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? But even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox, and seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. And immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Now, like I said, this is weird, right? There's no way you read this and think this is normal, right? Um, But it is actually something that is at least understandable. Uh, There is a a disease that uh, medical science will identify called zoanthropy. Uh, Zoanthropy is uh, the idea that a person identifies in some way with an animal. And and of course, there's a spectrum to this. Like some people might identify that they have sort of the spirit of an animal in them. Other people will go as far as to start living like an animal. And it seems that Nebuchadnezzar is hit with a bout of zoanthropy to the extreme degree that he starts going out and living like an ox in the field, eating grass and uh, being drenched with the rain. 
And uh, so while this is weird, it is something at least that we can understand. Now, quick tangent, we have to make sure that we don't just explain this away as just something that normally happens to people. Uh, that is not to do justice to the text. Um, some people will read this text and they'll see, see, it's just a normal mental illness. Sometimes people have mental illnesses. God wasn't part of this. Um, that's just frankly not doing justice to the way the story is told in the text. This was God giving this mental illness, we might call it, to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, the other portion of the, the narrative that we probably need to pull out is this idea of seven times. Um, so in the text, it says that seven times shall pass by for you while you're out in the field living like an ox, and then your sanity will be restored. And the reason we have to focus on this, first of all, is it's not just easily intuitive, and there are definitely some Christian teachers who have taken this teaching and have used it to build a whole theology that is contrary to the gospel, and so we just need to press on it for a moment. Um, the seven times idea, uh, many people will say, well, this was seven years. He was out in the field for seven years because that's what seven times means. Uh, frankly, I just don't think that works. And I'll give you a couple reasons why. First of all, this is a time in world history where it is hard to hold on to your throne when you're sitting on it, right? Like people are constantly vying for your authority. This isn't like a nice, you know, Western democracy where we wait for the next election to kick the guy that we don't like out. People just come and have a coup and take him off the throne if they don't like him, right? So it's hard enough to keep your throne when you're on the throne. Imagine how hard it is to keep your throne when you're gone for seven years, and you're gone and no one knows where you are either. It's not like, oh, he's in his vacation home and at least we know where he is. Like, we have no idea where Nebuchadnezzar is. Um, so just the idea of holding onto his throne for seven years while he's not even sitting on it just seems a little bit ridiculous to me. But I would go even a step farther and say, just from the text, I think we can see this. Uh, this is symbolic because the whole text is symbolic, just like it was last week, right? We said that it's very obvious that the text is symbolic and therefore the numbers also are symbolic. And so what is seven times? Not seven years, but seven being the number of God's complete time. Well, it is whatever time was necessary for Nebuchadnezzar to repent. Okay, so whatever time it was necessary for Nebuchadnezzar to repent, that's how long he's out in the field living like a zoanthropic man. So that still leaves the question, of course, like how long was this? And just in case you're curious, my guess is probably about two years or so. Two years is short enough of a time that you can basically cover for your absent king. And we also get in the text that it says that his hair had grown as long as the feather of an eagle. And uh, I've been growing my hair for about two years and it's about the length of the feather of an eagle. And so that's my guess. You don't have to agree with me on that. That's just my, my opinion on the matter. But the point is to say, we're not exactly sure how long but it can't be really that long if he hopes to hold on to his throne. But you know what happens, of course, right? At the end of this time, Nebuchadnezzar has his sanity restored. He comes back to his throne, acknowledges who God is, and his kingdom is restored to him in even a better way than he had it before, right? He says, the dominion, uh, God's dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples on earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. And no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And of course, his sanity then is restored and he gets his kingdom back in an even better way than he had it before. So this is the text. And like I said, as weird as the text is, I think it's actually pretty clear. God sends this dream to Nebuchadnezzar to say, repent of your sins, and Nebuchadnezzar doesn't. And so he goes out into the field, is struck with zoanthropy for a time until he repents and comes back to his kingdom restored. So what can we learn from this? 
What can we apply from, from this for our lives? I think the first thing that we have to do is answer the central question of this text. And it is, was Nebuchadnezzar a Christian, a believer by the end of this text? Uh, this is what most of the commentaries will argue about if you, if you read uh, what scholars will say about this text. They'll argue about whether or not Nebuchadnezzar was a Christian. And uh, I'll tell you, I really think he was. And I'll tell you that, first of all, just because I think on the one hand, there's overwhelming evidence to the idea that he was. First of all, you heard his confession. That sounds like the confession of somebody who acknowledges that God is God and he is not. You also see that he wrote the chapter. And so you have to account for why would Daniel let the words of somebody who is not actually a Christian end up in his scriptures that he carries on to give to the people who come after him. And you have to reckon with the fact that the entire book of Daniel up to this point has been God showing his power to Nebuchadnezzar, right? It's, it's God showing through Daniel and his friends the health that they have, even though they don't eat really good food. Then he is shown that Daniel, the only person can, who can interpret his dream of the giant statue, and then he literally throws Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego into a fiery furnace, and they come out without even the smell of smoke on them. I mean, this is all for Nebuchadnezzar's benefit. God has his eyes set on bringing Nebuchadnezzar into the faith. On the other hand, though, I would say the arguments for him not being a Christian are pretty weak. Um, and if I would just sum them up for you, because I read through them and tried to figure out what's the, what's the argument that he's not a Christian, and most of the arguments can be reduced down to like some biblical scholar pushing up his glasses in his study and saying, well, technically, because that's really what the problem is for a lot of people. They, they look at the text and they say, well, he technically doesn't acknowledge that the Jewish Messiah is really going to be the savior of the world. And he, he technically doesn't acknowledge that his sins are forgiven. And he technically doesn't acknowledge that God is the only God. He just says he's the most high God, which at least implies that he thinks there's some other gods. I mean, it, I'm all for being technical, right? Like, I believe the scripture speaks very clearly to us and that we can't just ignore things in the scriptures and say, you know, it, it doesn't really matter if we disagree about this or it doesn't really matter if we come to a conclusion on this. Like, the Bible is, is clear and it, it is, as the, the old theologian said, perspicuitous and, and that we should understand that its specificity is there on purpose for us to understand. But there's a tension that we have to hold here. And that is actually the first point if you're taking notes with us today. It's that faith is messy. Faith is messy. I don't know if it's because we're Western people, or maybe it's because we're Lutherans and we really love our doctrine to be really exact, uh, but sometimes we struggle with this. We, we don't have space for faith to be messy. Uh, for, for everything not to be black and white and clear cut and easy for us to understand when it comes to faith and, and how people express it. Let me see if I can press this on you a little bit with a couple examples. Um, first of all, I want you to think about the other people in this room. Some of you have been going to church together for the better part of two decades. Have you ever thought about somebody else in this room? I can't believe they call themselves a Christian. I'm not going to make you raise your hand because y'all would raise your hand, but we've thought that, right? We, we've looked at somebody else in this room and we've, because of something they've said or something they've done or the way that they raise their kids or the way they spend their money or how they're not in worship regularly or they're not at the Lord's Supper or whatever it is, we say, I can't believe they call themselves a Christian. We want everything to be black and white and easy and clear cut. We want to know who are the good people and who are the not good people. And, and we just don't have space for this, right? That faith is messy. That a person is not a Christian because they are particularly generous with their offerings, are particularly consistent in worship, are particularly good at raising children, or particularly active in reading their Bibles, or being in life groups, or being in Bible study, or whatever the thing is, they are a Christian because Jesus has saved them. And if they are saved, it is because they've acknowledged that they are a mess, 
right? So, so faith is, by its very nature, messy. It's God saving messed up people. But oftentimes we don't have space for that because we want our nice little clean cut social club where everybody behaves the way they're supposed to behave. We don't have space for it being a place where God forgives people who are broken, people who are corrupted. I remember a, an experience I had as a pastor. I was in a meeting and the meeting got particularly heated because of some things that were said either way, probably insensitively. And, and one woman stood up and she said, I, can't, I thought this was a Christian church. And she walked out. She was surprised that Christians would hurt each other, that Christians would sin against each other. She thought Christianity was about being a good person. Now understand, being a Christian is going to lead to you growing in your faith, but it is not the definition of your Christianity. Your your faith is in that you are not a good person, but Jesus is good for you. Let me say it to you differently. If we're surprised that people sin against us in this room, we don't understand the faith. We don't understand Christianity. Now, I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's good when we hurt each other with our words or our actions, or if we're not listening to what God has to say about how we manage our time or our energy or our money or our kids or our whatever. Like, that's not good, but it shouldn't surprise us because faith is messy. Let me try another one. Uh, Let's talk about the people who come in the door on Sunday who we don't really know that well. Maybe they're people who visit us on a Sunday or they're people who haven't been here that long. Do you ever get the, the sense that they're kind of a little bit like, like separate from, from the group of us who have been here for a really long time? Like those of us who know the history and who know the culture and, and have relationships that go back the better part of two decades. We, we've lived together, we've done Christianity together for so long that we, we sort of understand each other and there are things that just define the way cross of life works. Somebody comes in and they're new, they don't know that. And so we're glad that they're here, of course. We want them to hear the gospel, of course. We want them to become part of our congregation in in name, but do we want them to be part of our congregation in in functional relationship? Like, do we invite them over to our house for dinner? Are we asking them to come with us on a Saturday afternoon activity? We're praying for them, texting them, making sure they know that we care about them. We're saying more than just, hi, how you doing on Sunday morning, but we're engaging them with their life. Do they feel like part of our family? It's so easy for us to say, well, the way that we express our faith is this way, and you should kind of adjust your culture to fit ours. But faith's not like that. No one church has the the monopoly on church culture. God brings people into our congregation to shape our culture, and we have to welcome that. Let's try one more. What if um, faith being messy is not something you need to learn when your finger is pointed out at somebody else, but when your finger is pointed back at yourself? Like you're not saying about them, I can't believe that they call themselves a Christian, but your finger is pointed directly at your own chest and you're saying, I can't believe I call myself a Christian. Whether it's because of the thing that you keep falling back into that you told yourself would never happen again, or that one big mess up that it was just one time, but it changed everything, or that one thing that you did that maybe very few people know, but it haunts you because you present yourself as a pretty cleaned up person, but that still happened and that was still you. And if the people around here knew, you don't think they treat you the same. Faith is messy. You're not here because you're a good person. You're here because you have a good Savior. You're not here because you're cleaning your life up. Your Savior is cleaning your life up for you. You're not here because you're getting better. You're here because you're made perfect in Jesus. And your faith is going to be messy. There are going to be days when you feel like you are not pulling it off as a Christian. And God be praised that Jesus still forgives those sins. 
And then also remember that one of the primary metaphors that Jesus uses in his ministry to talk about the growth of faith is organic plant growth. Think about plant growth for a moment. What is true about plant growth? It's seasonal. I know it feels like fall out there, but it's not going to be for much longer. It's going to be winter. And you know what's going to be happening in winter? Ain't no apple trees producing apples. And you think those apple trees are going to be thinking to themselves, I can't believe I can't produce any apples. I feel so stagnant in my life. No, they know that it's winter and they know that summer is coming. And so they hold on to the nutrients that they have. They dig their roots deep into the ground until that time when when they can produce fruit again. And the same is true for us, maybe not with winter and summer, but, but the truth is we go through seasons and there are some seasons where we just need to hold on to God and his word and his supper and the community of believers we have because we are in a season of what feels like deadness, what looks like deadness, but we also know is going to produce life. That's what the Holy Spirit says. And there will be those days when you produce fruit. It will happen. God promises so. Hold on during those times because faith is messy. And so is Nebuchadnezzar's. He didn't have all the words right. He didn't have the perfect confession, the thing that we would write down for everyone to copy. But he believed. He believed that the Most High was God, and in the same way that the the thief on the cross next to Jesus didn't have all of his theology right, but knew who Jesus was, Nebuchadnezzar knew who God was. And I believe we'll see him in heaven. The next thing I want you to look at on your note sheet is, is this idea. To bring Nebuchadnezzar to faith, God had to make him mad. Right, think of everything that's happened to Nebuchadnezzar up to this point. He has seen guys miraculously healthy when they're not eating well. He has seen a guy interpret a dream that literally no one else in his kingdom can interpret. And he has thrown human beings into a furnace and has seen them come out alive. And after it all, he was still like, I'm not so sure about this God thing. Side note, um, sometimes people say like, oh, I would believe if God showed me a sign. The Bible says, no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. If you're asking for a sign, it's because you don't want to believe. It's not about God showing you enough evidence. You've decided already you don't want God, and you're just trying to make an excuse for it. That's Nebuchadnezzar. God gave him every possible sign you could give a guy. Nebuchadnezzar didn't want to believe. And so what it took was God to actually drive him mad, to make him, well, act like an animal and live outside and, and eat grass. Now, to my knowledge, none of you are struggling with zoanthropy. If you are, please come talk to me. But there are some things I'm betting in every one of your lives that are driving you mad. Maybe they are mental illness for you. It's depression, it's anxiety, it's bipolar, it's it's schizophrenia, whatever it is. Maybe it's physical, right? Your back just does not work anymore. Your hips and your knees are creaking. Maybe you're getting up in age and you're starting to forget things or, or not be able to focus. Maybe it's relational, right? It's, it's your marriage that you can't seem to get back on the rails, the children that won't listen to you. It's that person at work who just irritates you all the time and you can't seem to get away from them. It's the friendship that broke down when you thought it was going to be your best friend forever. Maybe it's work. You thought you'd be at a different place by this point in your life. You'd be ready to retire or, or you'd be married or, or you'd have kids or you'd be making more money than you're making right now. And it drives you mad. Or you think about the world and you look at the way that that people handle themselves and that culture tries to train children and and how world governments are corrupt and and you're just frustrated by it. It's driving you mad. The things that drive us mad ought to make us repent. That was God's purpose in driving Nebuchadnezzar mad. 
to show him that he has power over all things and that he will even bring him to the point of suffering with a severe mental illness so that he will repent. He will come back to God. And the same is true for you. Whatever it is that you suffer with, physical, mental, relational, occupational, political, it's meant to bring you to repentance. It's meant meant to bring you to the end of yourself where you say, I have nothing left to hold on to except Jesus and his cross. Because that's the only thing that really lasts forever. Look, whatever you trust to make you okay, it will fail you. And I bet some of you have this thought sometimes, if only I didn't have this in my life, then I'd be okay. That's God reminding you that you need him in order to take that thing away ultimately. Now, in Nebuchadnezzar's case, right, he did repent, and actually the mental illness was taken away from him, right? And and maybe that will be the case for you. Maybe it won't, though. Maybe you'll suffer with that thing, whatever it is, until the day when you die or Jesus comes back, and that will be good for you. Because Jesus knows if he takes it away, you won't repent. So keep repenting. Keep coming back to Jesus, holding on to him only. Because all the bad things in life, they are meant to draw us back to him. Last point then. Nebuchadnezzar's faith is surprising, right? We've kind of touched on this and at least hinted at it already. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar really, by all accounts, should not have been the type of person who would become a Christian. First of all, he is the powerful leader of the most powerful nation that has ever existed on earth up to that point. He is the high priest of a false religion. He has been shown obvious signs of God's power and has continued to reject them. I mean, there is no reason that Nebuchadnezzar should become a Christian. And yet he does. What's interesting to me is that uh, the best history on this gives us a date of about 570 BC for this vision of Nebuchadnezzar. Do any of you remember what year Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah went into Babylon? Bonus points if you remember this one. It's okay if you don't. 605. 605 BC. So this is 35 years after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah come into Babylon. 35 years it took for Nebuchadnezzar to come to the faith. 35 years of Daniel going to work every day for the man who didn't believe, who had actually tried to kill his friends because he didn't believe. 35 years of faithfully doing his job for a person who appreciated him in some ways, but not in others. Let me ask you, do we have that kind of willingness to invest in a person? A willingness to see 35 years of work be what's necessary to bring a person to the faith? And maybe it's because we're a money city. We're pretty good at putting money at problems, less good at putting time into problems. It's easy for us to fork over a couple hundred dollars to support a cause or to fill the offering plate, but it's hard for us to say no to some activity that we need to do or some extra hours at work so that we can be about the things of Christ. But that's what it takes. Nebuchadnezzar didn't need more money. He didn't need some program. He didn't need anything that money could buy. He needed someone to love him for 35 years, someone to be faithful to him for 35 years in order that he would come to faith. And of course, God was there, and of course, it's supernatural, but from Daniel's perspective, that's what it took. And can you imagine the many nights when Daniel is on his knees with the window open, praying toward Jerusalem, and his prayers, like Paul tells Timothy, are about rulers and authorities, kings, and he prays for Nebuchadnezzar. And he doesn't just pray that Nebuchadnezzar would be a good ruler, would be just, would would be prosperous for the nation, but he prays, God, would you bring Nebuchadnezzar to repentance? And how many days went by where that prayer was not answered? 
And how many times Hananiah, Daniel, Mishael, and Azariah are sitting around talking and they say, crazy idea, what do you think about this? Nebuchadnezzar becomes a believer. And one of them says, yeah, that'll never happen. But it did. Think about the many days that he went to work, the many conversations that he had with Nebuchadnezzar that aren't recorded for us in the scriptures where his faith came up and Nebuchadnezzar kind of just shoot it to the side. Yeah, yeah, whatever you Jews believe. 35 years it took. Let's think about this corporately first, and then we'll think about it individually. Corporately, as a congregation, do we have a 35-year vision of investment in this community? Or longer. I think it's so easy for us to be tempted to think about what is cool now, what is as functional now, what we want now, rather than thinking about putting an outpost of the gospel together that will last past any of our generations in Mississauga. It's not about what boomers or Xers or millennials or Gen Zs want. It's about what God wants and what God has said. And we are going to hold on to that and build that community here so that when every single person in this room is dead and gone, there is still a community here that loves the scriptures. Could we build that church? Could we think about the work that we put into our communities in loving the people who need us, who are poor, maybe not financially, but relationally or emotionally, as a 35-year investment, like not to get them to come to our next event, but just to love them as long as we have them on earth? And then personally, I mean, I think every one of us can think of somebody, I know I can, who you think to yourself, I just wish they were a Christian. I just wish they believed. It might take 35 years. But it's not going to happen by you giving them the right resources or having all the great apologetic arguments. Those things help, but those things aren't what make it happen. God makes it happen through your faithfulness. And so if that person is your best friend, be the best, best friend you could possibly be. If that person is your boss, be the best employee you could possibly be. If that person is your employee, be the best boss that you could be. If that person is your family member, be the best cousin, uncle, brother, sister, husband, wife, whatever that you could possibly be. Because at the end of 35 years, if that's what you do, you will be surprised what kind of effect that has on a person. They'll look back and they'll say, something's different about you. I've met some good people in my life, but I've never met anybody who worked like you. That's what Daniel was. So Nebuchadnezzar thought of Daniel, and the results are, are obvious. So let's do this, brothers and sisters. Let's repent. Let's hold on to invest in the things that last beyond this life. Because anything we want in this life, it will pass away, but the things that are forever, they are worth investing in. And then let's have a long-term view of what it means to invest in the city, to invest in our relationships. To love people because, well, God told us to love people. To be faithful because, well, God told us to be faithful. And let God take care of the results. No one is a lost cause. To God, every person is wanted. God wants all people to be saved, Paul said to Timothy. And we believe that as well. So let's pray for that. Jesus, you put us in this place in the world, at this time in the world's history, to be an outpost of the gospel. We pray that first the gospel would melt our hearts, that we would realize that we are incapable of saving ourselves, that we have no good works to offer you, but that we have Christ, and that Christ's good works have been given to us. And then I pray that you would give us a heart for our neighborhood a heart that says we want to serve the people here, not necessarily because they'll come to church, but simply because you told us to love them. Help us to be a light shining in the darkness. And if it be your will, bring more people to hear the gospel and believe it. People we may not expect, people who will change our culture, people who will allow us to see how great your power is. And so we glorify you. 
with Daniel, with Nebuchadnezzar, and with all those today who are calling upon your name. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.